President Biden is expected to put Houthi militants back on the global terrorist list as the U.S. continues its strikes on the group in Yemen. It's Wednesday, January 17th. This is WBMAR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, only three major GOP presidential candidates remain following the Iowa caucuses, with Donald Trump's campaign anticipating more victories in the weeks ahead. We're going to go in, obviously, and take uh, New Hampshire. We're going to take Nevada and, of course, uh, South Carolina. It'll be a sweep all the way. Also, the Supreme Court hears arguments in two fishing cases that could weaken federal rulemaking. And this hour, a bipartisan plan in Congress to help low-income Americans by expanding the child tax credit. We've got so many families, literally millions, who every week are walking an economic tightrope. Sunny and windy in the 20s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Supreme Court is set to hear arguments today on a case that could upend decades of federal regulation. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the case is being championed by the conservative legal movement. A group of herring fishermen are challenging a federal rule that requires them to pay for observers on their boats, but the case involves a lot more than the fishing industry. Lawyers for the fishermen are asking the Supreme Court to overturn nearly four decades of precedent that governs how judges interpret federal regulations. They're backed by conservative legal foundations and business interests. The case could have big implications for environmental protection, gun safety, and nicotine. The Biden administration says a bending precedent could be a convulsive shock to the system. A decision is expected from the high court by June. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. President Biden has invited the four top congressional leaders to the White House today. They'll discuss aid to Israel, Ukraine, and the southern U.S. border. This comes as Congress needs to pass separate spending legislation or part of the government could shut down on Friday. The Senate has voted to start debating a short-term spending bill. Israel and Hamas militants have reached an agreement to allow medicine into Gaza. It's intended for hostages whom Hamas is holding. Israel will also allow more medicine to enter Gaza for Palestinians. The Mideast conflict is under discussion at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says despite the Mideast conflict, this is a time for the U.S. to contribute to regional peace. Much of what we're trying to do, we can't effectively get done alone. We have to have partners. We have to reimagine as we've been doing our partnerships. And that actually makes it a great time, even with the terrible human trauma that um, so many people are going through now and that, that affects all of us. The Secretary of State spoke to The New York Times. China says that its population has shrunk for a second year in a row. The country's birth rate has been falling, even though China is allowing families to have more children. NPR's Emily Fang prepared this report. China's Statistics Bureau said the total number of people dropped by more than 2 million, though in total there are still about 1.4 billion people in China at the end of last year. But this population shrinkage is accelerating. The year before, the total population decreased by only 850,000 people. The last time China's population contracted for two years in a row was during a man-made famine in the 1960s. Changing social mores, fewer marriages, and the expense of having children in China have led many people to forego procreation. And that's after China ended the one-child policy. Families can have up to three children now and enjoy extended maternity leaves and health care subsidies, but few are choosing to do so. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. This is NPR. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Moore Healy will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tonight. She plans to outline a number of policy wins by her administration. That includes universal free school meals, a free community college program, and tax cuts. She's also expected to call for greater investments in housing and transportation. Tune in to WBUR at 645 tonight for live special coverage of Healy's State of the Commonwealth address. The city of Boston is taking aim at new targets in legal action over the opioid epidemic. The city's new lawsuit names some pharmacy benefit managers alleging they collaborated with drug makers and helped fuel the epidemic. WBOR's Deborah Becker reports. The suit names major companies such as Express Scripts Pharmacy and Optum Rx, which manage prescription drug benefits for many health plans. The city alleges these pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, have been at the center of distributing opioids and helped create the epidemic. University of Southern California law professor Adam Zimmerman says Boston's suit could prompt other similar litigation. I see a case like this as a bellwether for whether or not we'll see more cases against the PBMs. Settlements have been reached in other lawsuits against opioid makers, distributors, and retailers. The companies did not respond to requests for comment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Researchers at Tufts University have found decades of benefit from participating in the METCO program. That program sends thousands of Boston school students to suburban districts each year. Researchers found participants earned higher MCAS scores, attended college at higher rates, and even had higher lifetime earnings when compared to peers who attended Boston schools. Tufts economist and lead researcher Elizabeth Setrin hopes this report helps schools think about the benefits of racial integration. I think these findings are also applicable to districts uh, working on how to use school assignment to increase equity and access to high-quality education. The study found no negative effects on academics or discipline in the 33 participating districts. Acclaimed singer-songwriter James Taylor is returning to Tanglewood this summer. The concerts will celebrate Taylor's longtime connection to the venue in the Berkshires. Taylor first played Tanglewood 50 years ago in 1974. This year, he's scheduled to play two shows on July 3rd and 4th. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. Northeastern University and Boston University are moving on to this year's women's beanpot title match. BU upset Boston College yesterday in a 4-3 shootout. Defending champs Northeastern beat Harvard 1-0. The two teams will face off next week for the beanpot championship game at the Garden. The Celtics are back home tonight to face off against the San Antonio Spurs. Tip-off is at 7.30. The National Weather Service is warning drivers across southern New England to be aware of black eyes as they make their morning commute. We'll have sunny skies today, but it'll be windy with a high only in the upper 20s. Tonight's skies remain clear and temperatures dip into the teens. Tomorrow, clouds move back in and it'll be windy again with a high near 30. It's 20 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The United States is escalating its fighting in Yemen. What does it hope to accomplish? The U.S. has repeatedly fired missiles into Yemen. It is responding to Houthi fighters who control much of that country and who have been attacking global shipping as it moves past the Yemeni coast. This is seen as part of a gradually widening Mideast conflict because Houthis claim they are responding to the Israel-Hamas war. NPR National Security correspondent Greg Myrie has been measuring U.S. goals against the results, and he's with us now. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Michelle. I'm just, Greg, I'm going to ask you to start by telling us what the U.S. has done so far and what exactly is the objective. Well, the objective is to get the Houthis to stop attacking ships in the Red Sea because it's such a vital shipping lane. And the U.S. carried out its third round of strikes on Tuesday. A U.S. official said this knocked out Houthi missiles that were being prepared to target more cargo ships. And in all three of these strikes in recent days, the U.S. says it has hit the Houthi targets. But the U.S. also acknowledged that just hours after this strike yesterday, the Houthis did manage to to launch a missile that hit a Greek-owned vessel. The damage was limited. The ship kept on its path through the Red Sea. But clearly, the Houthis have not been deterred up to this point. So, so if not much deterrence is happening at this point, I guess the goal is to deplete its supply of weapons and drones over time. Is there any way to assess whether that, that is happening? Well, it certainly hasn't happened this point, and it's, it's too early to tell if the U.S. would be able to do that. Analysts say you shouldn't expect the Houthis to run out of weapons in the short term. Yemen is a very poor country, and it, it doesn't make these weapons. But according to the U.S., Iran has been supplying the Houthis with missiles, with drones and intelligence that it is using in these attacks. And the Houthis have proven themselves to be very resilient fighters. They emerged as a top military force in Yemen after years years of civil war in that country. One thing I should note, missiles are expensive and there may be some limit on how many Iran wants to give to the Houthis. Drones are cheap and the Houthis could probably keep up with this type of weapon for a very long time. Now the Houthis say they are attacking ships with some connection to Israel. Is this an accurate claim? Well, it's certainly a claim that resonates in the Middle East right now. I mean, one thing we're often hearing is that the Houthis are doing more than any group or country to support the Palestinians in, in Gaza. But is it accurate? I mean, remember, these are commercial ships from all over the world traveling in international waters. In one or two instances, the Houthis have claimed some fuzzy, tenuous connections to Israel. But overwhelmingly, there's no evidence of Israeli links. For example, this ship on Tuesday is Greek-owned. It traveled under a Maltese flag. Well, so to that end, I mean, President Biden says he wants to prevent a wider regional war. But is this starting to look like that? Well, it, it certainly could. You know, the Israeli-Hamas war has now been raging for more than 100 days. Uh, hostilities are now playing out in, in five or six places daily in the Middle East. And U.S. forces are attacking or being attacked in several of them. So, Michelle, it is absolutely a very volatile moment. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thank you. Sure thing, Michelle. Okay, let's think through the scenarios for the Republican presidential nominating contest. Donald Trump won Iowa this week. Turnout wasn't high in the caucuses, but he dominated among people who showed up, defeating Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, knocking others out of the race entirely. Trump campaign aide Bruce Lavelle spoke with NPR Scott Detrow on election night and made a prediction. 
we're going to go in, obviously, and take uh, New Hampshire. We're going to take Nevada and, of course, uh, South Carolina. It'll be a sweep all the way. Now, you would expect a campaign aide to say just about that about his boss, no matter which campaign, no matter which aide. But this prediction is in line with current polls. So is there any suspense here? Any at all? Political strategist Rena Shaw joins us to discuss. She's a Republican and identifies as a never-Trumper going back to the 2016 convention. Welcome. Good morning. I was looking up the story. You were tossed out as a, as a delegate, right, for criticizing Trump and got back in. Is that correct? Indeed, I was the first elected delegate to do so before he became the presumptive nominee that year. Okay, so you've been a never-Trumper for a very long time. You are still, though, active in the Republican Party, working as a strategist, a consultant. Based on the results that you have seen, is this contest over? Steve, far from that, there's this air of inevitability, if you will, but it doesn't have to be this way. We still have DeSantis and Haley who've got a very sure shot at this thing. And look, Haley's out there claiming that it's a two-person race from now on, and she's not Though she's not accurate, she's not too far off because she and Ron DeSantis are just a few thousand votes of each other in Iowa so far, and they both are within one delegate of each other, DeSantis having earned nine delegates in Iowa and Haley having earned eight, but Trump having earned 20. Um, understand all of that, but when you do look at the polling and you see Trump over 50 percent of Republican support and the rest of it divided between a couple of people, doesn't that add up to Trump winning again and again and again? Well, if 2016 taught us anything, it's not to believe these polls. You get a lot of hard right supporters answering these polls. And back to the delegate math for a moment. What's needed is 1,215 to win the Republican nomination. This uh, And essentially what we're looking at is that these primary contests do last for about six months, but more than 70% of all delegates are going to be allocated by the end of March. So I get that that leaves people wondering, well, how's it even possible? But Look to Super Tuesday. That's where I'm looking at. Uh, that date, essentially, where we see that slew of contests around the country, March 5th. And to me, that's when we can take the real pulse of the Republican electorate writ large. These early contests so far, I'm, I'm not putting too much stock in them, particularly not in Iowa, where we saw a really depressed turnout. 2024 turnout for these caucuses in Iowa were the lowest they were in more than a decade. So to me, Trump, yes handily won, but in many ways he fared just fine. If you look at that through the vein of how these campaigns move forward, mm -hmm. then you start to see that Trump may need to start to get creative in these other states. Let me let me just um, work through a couple of things that you said there. You said, let's not trust the polls, but I will just recall that in the 2016 campaign, the polls turned out to be roughly correct. People kept saying Trump is a flash in the pan. He's going to go away. These polls are fake or not fake, but they're not accurately measuring people's sentiment when they get serious. And it turns out people were serious about nominating Donald Trump. Let me ask another question, if I can. Um, I suppose if Trump faced just one opponent, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, that opponent would have a better shot. But some of the support of the other person would probably go to Trump. What is the way in which one of those candidates would get to a majority over the next few weeks? Well, these candidates certainly have their work cut out for them. You know, when you're looking at Trump getting 20 of 40 delegates, for example, and again, DeSantis taking eight, Haley taking seven, it leaves some sense that it's not possible for there to be a breakthrough. But you've got to look at, again, how these nominating contests fair for Haley, for example, in, in South Carolina, her native South Carolina, in in. 
the end of February, what you're going to see there is some sense of who are we going to nominate from here on out? And if it starts to smell like Trump, we're going to get a sense then. But I would say also follow the money. There has to be longevity. And I think it's there for these underdog campaigns. Spending in Iowa was record. And, and we're talking $120 million in ad spending. And for these three campaigns, Trump, Haley, and DeSantis, we saw around $84 million of the total ad buys were in support of them. So I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm not so sure that I want to put much stock in these, some of these being very rural states where we know Trump is going to fare well and where people will be saying what they did in Iowa right. in some ways. Let's go for the devil we know versus the one we don't. But don't apply conventional wisdom here entirely, Steve. This is a contest in which, again, anything can happen at any time. Totally. Let's not forget Trump has a very complicated uh, schedule of legal matters coming ahead of yeah. him. And if I can, very briefly, totally yes. with you on not going with the conventional wisdom, but in about a sentence, is there a hunger in the Republican Party essentially for Nikki Haley's case to move on from Donald Trump? I submit to you there is. There's no way these campaigns would be making it this far uh, or be able to garner any of the support they've gotten so far, whether we're looking at power mm -hmm. or money. Nikki Haley has those endorsements, so they wouldn't be alive at this point if there weren't an appetite for somebody new. But Rena, again, Trump Rena, looms large. got to stop you there. Rena Shaw, political strategist and commentator, thanks so much. Thank you. 30 years ago today, a powerful earthquake struck Northridge. That's a neighborhood in Los Angeles. I have never, ever seen anything like this, obviously, in Los Angeles, the Santa Monica Freeway at La Cienega. The earthquake killed 72 people and injured thousands. At the time, Mark Benthian was a student studying geophysics. The earthquake was at 4.31 in the morning. Uh, of course, everything fell onto the floor, and I had to kind of climb through that. The costliest earthquake in American history, causing billions of dollars in damages. Benthian is now director for outreach for the Earthquake Center at the University of Southern California. He says the quake exposed structural vulnerabilities in California. We learn what type of damage they can cause, and we try to prevent that damage in the future by updating the building code for new construction, as well as requiring some older, most vulnerable buildings to be retrofitted. Janelle Maffei is chief mitigation officer with the California Earthquake Authority. What a retrofit does is it goes back into an older structure and introduces new structural elements. And in the case of houses, they're predominantly wood frame in California. It puts in new bolts and plywood and framing clips, the kinds of things that you see at your local hardware store. And she says retrofitting buildings can save lives. The U.S. Geological Survey released a study finding most of the U.S. could experience damaging earthquake shaking. For many parts of the country, the hazard has increased. We found that some of these places are more susceptible to earthquakes than we had previously thought. That's Mark Peterson, the lead author of the National Seismic Hazard Model Report. He helped create a map to plot out where earthquakes are more likely to occur in the U.S. And while California has updated some safety standards since that earthquake 30 years ago, there are still many vulnerable places in the United States that require retrofitting. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning that a judge has blocked JetBlue's merger with Spirit Airlines. Also, ABC News has canceled its GOP debate after Nikki Haley demanded it include Donald Trump. 
And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a new bipartisan deal in Congress could help low-income Americans by expanding the child tax credit. We'll look at the bill's chances of passing. It's 719. WBUR supporters include Lesley University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Lesley University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at lesley.edu. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at wbur.org legacy. Some Israeli officials call for the voluntary migration of people from the Gaza Strip. Many Palestinians are wary. There's nothing voluntary about it. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Sunny, windy, and cold today with a high only in the upper 20s. Mostly clear with lows in the upper teens tonight. It gradually grows overcast tomorrow and will be windy again. We'll have a high near 30. It's 20 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday. With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. A composer tried to write a single piece that would use just a few instruments to tell the story of everything, going back to the start of the universe. Nogotula and Guanyama wrote for two violins, a viola, and a cello. The composition is called Flow, and the Takash Quartet gave it its world premiere in November. It's now touring the country. NPR's Olivia Hampton met the quartet at a performance in Baltimore. Nogutula and Guanyama's flow starts with the beginning of everything, that moment when the universe gradually filled with ionized gas. To get that effect, and when Yama had the musicians do something they weren't accustomed to. I asked the Takash Quartet to begin on the other side of the bridge, on the short strings between the bridge and the tailpiece. So they're getting kind of overtones of their strings, pushing the instrument to its maximum amplitude in a way that maybe they hadn't done before. This was the very first time for me I couldn't see what I'm doing on the instrument. That's Andras Feyer, a founding member of the quartet. 
was a shock, then it was a scare, then I could relax somewhat. Because the violins, they actually had some visual point, but not for me. Oh, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, that you have to look over the bridge down into this abyss. And then you were asking me for a double stop, which just <laughs> added to my paralysis. But it sounds so good. <laughs> If that reminds you of a gong, it's no accident. The cello is imitating traditional Balinese gamelan music. And Guanyama is unafraid to draw on the entire range of musical forms. And the Takash Quartet are kind of her ideal collaborators. Founded by a group of students in Budapest nearly 50 years ago, they moved to the U.S. in the early 1980s and became known for their recordings of Beethoven, Schubert, and Bartok. But with this piece, the musicians are pushing their instruments and themselves to the limit. Here's second violinist Harumi Rhodes. There's nothing more exciting, nothing more exciting than creating new things together and making sure that that's always a joyful process. Whatever we do to keep that human, joyful, collaborative spirit, I think is something that our quartet really embraces. How can we give more character to a phrase so that it would be absolutely clear for the audience how they can listen to it? Then they are more open to really enjoy it and act like a sponge for her music. Here's Rhodes again. Throughout time, composers are often their most experimental when it comes to writing for string quartets. I mean, there's something about the string quartet that's so flexible and intimate, being a family of four, but also the fact that we can also sound like a symphony, you know, we can also be mighty and strong. In this case, the composer is a violist herself, and Guanyama says these musicians' willingness to push boundaries gave her the freedom to experiment as she collaborated with them on bringing it to life. It's really a collaboration, something like this, because the piece doesn't live until it's played and performed. This freedom shines through in the quirk scherzo movement. That musical term, scherzo, is Italian for joke. The quirk is the smallest unit of matter. Here, Anguanyama explores these subatomic particles. She sends them into a giddy waltz.
The piece ends with an image of huge flocks of birds in flight. The two violins chase each other and dovetail, like starlings twisting, turning, and slicing through the air. Before landing. And when Yama says her composition is all about how we're connected to one another and to nature in irreversible ways, she says particle physics offers us lessons in how to live in harmony. It's hard not to be influenced by the way people are treating each other in the world. We're building walls between each other instead of celebrating our commonalities and the fact that we are of the same stuff and we should value and treasure each other. It's a physical and chemical concept, but it's also a spiritual one. Olivia Hampton, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, an effort to save animals from zoos in the Gaza Strip. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. About two million Gazans have been internally displaced in this war. Some Israeli officials want them to leave Gaza altogether. Many Palestinians balk at that. They know from the past they were promised you're going to go back to your houses. Why the phrase voluntary migration hits a nerve for Palestinians who've lost their land before. I'm Ari Shapiro. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. has carried out another airstrike against Houthi rebels in Yemen in an effort to deter them from attacking commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Anti-ship ballistic missiles were taken out by the U.S. in what was the third attack against the Iranian-backed militants in less than a week. Hours later, the Houthis struck a Greek-owned vessel with a missile, causing limited damage. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby was asked about the Houthi attacks. Most of the attacks are, are knocked out of the sky before they can get to, uh, to the target. Republican presidential candidates Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley are campaigning in New Hampshire today ahead of next week's primary in the Granite State. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben says despite finishing far back of Trump in this week's Iowa caucuses, as well as behind DeSantis, Haley's campaign is expecting a stronger showing in New Hampshire. The spin her campaign has after her third place finish in Iowa is that she has long-term momentum. When he was introducing her yesterday, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu said that Haley had, just a few months ago, been in single digits in Iowa and New Hampshire. And that all is true, but Trump is so dominant, she would need a huge pickup in support to be more of a threat. That's NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reporting. This is NPR News from Washington. 
This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Two men face gun trafficking charges for their alleged roles in bringing dozens of illegal firearms into Boston. Federal prosecutors say over three years, the men purchased guns in South Carolina and brought them into Massachusetts. The issue was discovered after a trafficked firearm was recovered at a shooting in Boston. Fresh from his victory in the Iowa caucuses, former President Donald Trump campaigned in New Hampshire yesterday. The stop took place with just one week to go before the state's first-in-the-nation Republican primary. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports New Hampshire may present more of a challenge for the former president. Trump rallied supporters, many wearing red MAGA hats, who packed a room in the town of Atkinson. He touted his landslide victory in Iowa and said with their help he'll win again next week in New Hampshire. Kathleen Moran of Manchester said she voted for Trump in 2016 and is still with him. We want our country back again. And what does that mean exactly? Our kids to be safe. Security in our jobs, our paychecks. When I go to bed at night knowing that Trump was president, I felt good sleeping. In New Hampshire, Trump faces a challenge from Nikki Haley. She finished third in Iowa, but is appealing to moderate independents, and some polls suggest she's within striking distance of Trump. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The Patriots are expected to officially introduce Gerard Mayo as their new head coach today. Mayo has been on the Patriots coaching staff since 2019. He also played as a linebacker for the team for seven seasons. Mayo steps into the role just weeks after longtime Bill Belichick parted ways with the Pats. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man seeking audience. A one-man, one-audience show, 264 Huntington Ave., starting Saturday. Northeastern University will look to uphold its women's beanpot title next week when they face off against Boston University. The two teams won their matches against Harvard and Boston College yesterday. The championship game takes place at the Garden on Tuesday. The Celtics will look to keep their undefeated home winning streak alive tonight. They take on the San Antonio Spurs at 7.30. Clear skies and windy today. It'll be cold with highs only in the upper 20s. Still mostly clear tonight. Temperatures fall into the teens. Clouds move in throughout the day tomorrow and it'll be windy again. Highs will be near 30. It's 20 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and co-workers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Two tax writers in Congress say they've reached a deal to expand the child tax credit. One of them is Republican Jason Smith, who heads a powerful House committee. And the other is Democrat Ron Wyden, who leads a powerful Senate committee. We've got so many families, literally millions, who every week are walking an economic tightrope. And so these two lawmakers are trying to restore some version of a tax credit that lifted millions of people out of poverty during the early phase of the pandemic. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is covering the story. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What does this tax credit mean? It means that families would be able to deduct 
more on their taxes for the next three years. The current refundable tax credit is capped at $1,600 per child, and this deal would increase it incrementally and adjust it for inflation starting next year. As you mentioned, there was a version of this uh, in the COVID relief bill in 2021. This is not as generous and it's temporary, but the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and nonpartisan think tank estimates that this plan would provide relief in the first year to roughly 16 million children from low-income families. Mm. One example they give is a parent who is a server in the food industry who earns about $15,000 a year, who has two children, a toddler and a second grader, in the first year, if this tax credit goes into law, it would increase that parent's credit by almost double, going from about $1,875 to $3,600 in that first year. They also estimate this expanded tax credit would benefit children from all races and ethnicities. Okay, so this means a significant amount of extra money for somebody who, in your example, is already working but not being paid very much, and now the government is going to help them. This is something that was done during the pandemic that lifted millions of people out of poverty. According to the numbers, it worked. So why has it been so hard for Congress to bring back? There's been a big push from Democrats to renew this and make this tax credit permanent. But conservatives oppose doing that without tying some work requirements to this kind of federal assistance. Democrats tried to include this in a large package when they controlled both chambers of Congress, but that didn't get through. Now this bipartisan deal has a, has a, a not as generous a version of it, uh, and it's only temporary. And there is, of course, this whole basic argument over a universal basic income, whether the federal government should just be paying people or whether that should be hard or not done at all. So there's a bipartisan deal now which throws in some credits for business. What are those? Right. This legislation allows corporations to immediately write off their expenses that they spend on research and development instead of getting that tax break over the next five years. It also allows companies to deduct 100% of the cost they invest in new equipment. The bill also has targeted relief for small businesses. Most of these business tax breaks, like the child tax credit, last for three years, but the one for small businesses uh, is permanent. Another thing I should note about this bill that's significant is a provision to expand affordable housing. It restores a low-income housing tax credit. Given that you've got a powerful Senate Democrat and a powerful House Republican on board, are the prospects good of this becoming law? There is a split among uh, Democrats on the Hill. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer endorsed the bill, mm -hmm. but some House Democrats say this package tilts too much in the direction of business and not enough towards kids. We could see some action quickly. They may try to attach it to a short-term funding bill to avoid a shutdown. Okay. NPR's Deirdre Walsh, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. As Republicans move through their primary calendar, party officials say they need more of their voters to cast ballots before Election Day, including by mail. They want GOP voters to embrace the habit, so fewer of their voters are waiting to vote in person on the final day of voting. There's just one problem. The party needs its voters to overcome a stigma created by Republicans. NPR's Ashley Lopez has this report. When Madison Jesse Otto Gilbert ran for Congress in 2022, she ran in a pretty competitive district in Ohio. Gilbert says she thought she had some good odds, but she lost. And she has a theory about why. We got killed on the early vote. And this is something that I think across the country, there's been a stigma within the Republican Party about voting early. 
Gilbert, who is now a spokesperson for the Republican National Committee, says too many GOP voters that year waited to vote in person on Election Day. That's even voters who live in states with weeks of in-person early voting and mail voting. I personally am not the biggest fan of early voting of election season, as we call it now. But the reality is, is it's here. And in a lot of places, it may be here to stay. So until things change in the states, prospectively, we have to be playing the same game that the Democrats are playing in order to win. Starting this past summer, the RNC launched a campaign called Bank Your Vote. The point is to get Republicans to overlook discomfort with in-person early voting and mail voting. And they're relying on Republican candidates to spread the message. And that includes former President Donald Trump. Go to bankyourvote.com to sign up and commit to voting early. Despite endorsing Bank Your Vote, on the trail, Trump has continued to cast doubt on the legitimacy and security of mail voting in particular. Aaron Sherb with Common Cause says this is a huge hurdle for the RNC. He says Republicans across the country have been maligning mail voting since 2020. He says it's going to be hard for them to convince their voters to get over a distrust they created. So getting voters to like unlearn or unhear those messages is tough to undo that damage. And so I think that's what this Bank the Vote program is trying to essentially do. It's somewhat analogous to getting a jury to unhear extremely damaging information that's presented against the defendant. Another hurdle is that skepticism around some voting issues runs really deep among Republican voters, says Charles Stewart at MIT. And Republicans have always been much more likely to believe that fraud was a problem, that it occurred, and much more likely to believe it's important to secure the election than it is to pass laws to expand participation. Despite that, GOP officials say they need to counteract some of that skepticism if they want to win elections and save money. If they get out early, we're not going to spend as much money on them. That's Madison Gilbert again with the RNC. So it may be around $5, right, that we spend on that voter if they get out early. However, if we keep having to chase them, if we keep having to phone them, to mail them, to reach them, to try to get them out to vote, we're continuing to spend money over and over and over on the same voter. Gilbert says if more of their core voters cast their votes early, they could use their resources on less reliable voters. Charles Stewart at MIT says some Republican voters might respond to the argument that this will help them beat Democrats. But there's going to be another set of voters who are going to say, well, you're asking me to do something that I already feel uncomfortable doing for all these other reasons. And I know for a fact that I'm going to show up to vote in person to vote. So what's in it for me? Stewart says it's also worth noting that messages about voter fraud and mail voting are also coming from grassroots organizations that are making millions of dollars selling the story of voter fraud. Stewart says counteracting those messages might be one of the tougher hurdles for the RNC to clear. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. This is NPR News. After one year in office, Governor Maura Healey will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tonight. Listen for live special coverage at 645 tonight on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. And coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, how the Republican candidates for president are adjusting their approach as they campaign in New Hampshire ahead of that state's primary next week.
Only in the upper 20s today, it'll be sunny and windy. Upper teens tonight under mostly clear skies. Near 30 tomorrow and windy again. It'll grow increasingly overcast throughout the day. It's 20 degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell is applauding a ruling that prevents a merger between JetBlue and Spirit Airlines. A federal judge ruled the merger would raise costs for consumers. Campbell agreed. She says the ruling is good for Massachusetts residents because it'll keep prices low and let travelers have more options when booking flights. Both airlines say they may appeal the ruling. JetBlue is the largest carrier at Logan Airport. Brookline is launching an initiative to promote small, independently owned businesses. Project Pop-Up aims to diversify Brookline storefronts and increase foot traffic in the area. Meredith Mooney is Brookline's Economic Development Director. She hopes this initiative will make it easier for people who are trying to open their own store. The objective is we give these businesses the opportunity to do a test run in Brookline Um, you know, get some success, build a customer base in the area, and then hopefully transition to a storefront business once they're ready to make that leap somewhere else in Brookline. The project will start with three businesses owned by women. The pop-up store space is located just outside Coolidge Corner. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant, a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. Israel's war with Hamas has created a humanitarian catastrophe for the millions of Palestinians stuck in Gaza. Most of the population is displaced, and Gaza's already impoverished infrastructure has collapsed. The United Nations says 90% of the population regularly goes a whole day without food. And while the humans are living in dire conditions, so are the animals in Gaza. Veterinarian Dr. Amir Khalil argues any life that can be saved from war should be saved. I think it is the wrong timing to say whom to save and whom not to save. I think if I'm able to help one creature, it's enough. Dr. Khalil is part of a team at Four Paws, an organization that rescues animals from war zones. I spoke with him as he was planning a mission to get surviving animals out of the zoos in Gaza. To go to a war zone or conflict zone, uh, the team and myself, we are prepared for the unexpected. The most important thing is the safety and the security for the team. So we cannot enter without coordination with all involved stakeholders in Israel and in Gaza. So it's like a military operation, in fact, to do such a mission. What kinds of animals are you expecting to try to rescue from Gaza? There is several zoos in Gaza. Currently, we hear about three zoos are in need. There is a private zoo in central Gaza, 
and in Rafah Zoo there is animal. So we speak about lions, we speak about hyena, we hear about crocodiles there, and three baboon who escaped from a zoo in Gaza. How do you move them, considering that many of the roads are destroyed and it's still an active war zone? So take us through that process of actually moving the animals once you have them. In fact, it needs a lot of intelligence work before, especially on the road. If you enter under humanitarian aid, a lot of people will think you have food for humans. So they might attack even your car. You need to be aware about the road are safe from snipers. You have to be aware about enough food with you for the animal because you don't know how long it will take. Even a short distance, it might take hours sometime for a checkpoint or control. You need to be prepared for the worst scenario all the time. And where do you expect to go with the animals right off the bat? Our intention to take the animal to Egypt and from Egypt we go further to our destination will be our sanctuary with the Princess Alia Foundation will be in Jordan. Could you imagine a situation where they would go back to Gaza somehow or are they now out of Gaza permanently? If you imagine the majority of the animal were smuggled by tunnels, six kilometers under the ground, the people in Gaza deserve to have sure wild animal deserve to have a proper place where they can see the animal, but not really a prison, because the majority of the animal were kept in, in poor condition due to the political situation there and the economic situation. But if Gaza sure in the future get a proper condition and they have a proper place to keep animal, I think 100% everyone will assist uh, the people there to deserve to see wildlife, but also under international standard. Doctor, I apologize in advance for how this question is going to sound, but considering you risking your life, does it make sense to do that for animals in this situation? It's more about kindness. It makes no sense to fight only for human and we let animals die from hunger. This is no humanity. So I think to rescue the life for such a mission, it is a candle in the dark to stop the war. I witnessed this several times in Gaza and in Israel. They were putting the weapons down on the ground to let the animal pass. So it might be a hope. I think humanity is much bigger word. That's Dr. Amir Khalil of Four Paws. Thank you very much, doctor. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is NPR News. Coming up at 820 here on WBUR's Morning Edition, the mayor of Lincoln, Nebraska, talks about her top issues for the election season and how the next administration can help communities like hers. It's 749. WBUR supporters include A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com and Celebrity Series with What Makes It Great, featuring A Far Cry, exploring Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings, February 3rd, CelebritySeries.org. Mornings are dark this time of year, and the news can feel that way too. Morning Edition from NPR News helps keep you informed, not overwhelmed. Listen for a brighter start to your day. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. U.S. officials say they plan to designate Yemen's Houthi militia as a terrorist organization. Officials in Qatar say they've brokered a deal between Israel and Hamas to send medicine to hostages in Gaza. And Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey delivers her first State of the Commonwealth address tonight. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
Sunny, windy in upper 20s today, mostly clear in upper teens tonight. Increasingly cloudy, windy, and near 30 tomorrow. It's 20 degrees in Boston. Wednesday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Mayors from across the country are gathering in Washington, D.C. this week for the U.S. Conference of Mayors Winter Meeting. It is a chance for local leaders to meet each other and to make their priorities known to federal lawmakers and the Biden administration. And this matters because, well, mayors matter. While their responsibilities may differ from place to place, local leaders tend to touch the things that tend to matter most to people. Housing, schools, playgrounds, public safety. So we are are talking with some of the mayors in town this week about what they are up to and their priorities for this election year. Joining us today in studio is Illyrian Gaylor-Baird. She is a Democrat and the mayor of Lincoln, Nebraska. It's a city of about 300,000 people. Good morning. Thanks for coming. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. I just wanted to start by talking about some of your signature initiatives. You've made a big push for mental health training for law enforcement. You're trying to get, say, mental health professionals to accompany law enforcement officers on certain calls. You've pushed on affordable housing and even making playgrounds more accessible for kids with disabilities. These are some sort of really kind of unique programs here. And I was just wondering if there's something that ties them all together. Like, why are these your priorities? Well, public safety and opportunity for everyone in our community are among my top priorities. And in part, you know, I'm the daughter of two public school teachers, and I was aware at a very early age that not every child's born into the same set of circumstances or access to resources and opportunities. And as mayors, we focus a lot on making sure that we're providing a good opportunity for a high quality of life for everyone. And you've said, look, in your State of the City address, you said you wanted Lincoln to be the quality of life capital of the country. Um, that means lots of things to different people. But let's focus on a sort of the federal aspect of that. Is there some aspect of that where the federal government is helpful to you or where it falls short? Absolutely. Uh, it, it means that we're a safe city and a great place to raise a family and where people can get to work and create a life for their families and economic opportunity. And in cities, mayors are focused on ensuring that we have the resources for our law enforcement officers so that we can do the kind of co-responder model that you mentioned. We've got support from the Department of Justice to fund our co-responder model that pairs mental health resources with officers. And that helps take the workload off our officers, too. And infrastructure for things like our multimodal transit center. We received a $23.6 million grant in Lincoln to build out a new transit center. That's thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law that president and Congress have passed, and it's making a difference in creating economic opportunity in cities all across the country. So I know that constituents tend to get irritated when their local leaders, you know, go to meetings. I don't know. I guess they think you're all having lobster dinners or whatever. But can you explain, like, why do you come to meetings like this? What's what's Why is this worth your time? Yeah, the U.S. Conference is an incredibly effective resource in advocating for the needs of cities and the people whom we serve. And as a trustee at the conference, it's really important for me to be here in person and to learn and listen to my fellow mayors and the solutions that they're finding to our shared challenges and priorities. And just one example, water's a big concern across the country. And in Lincoln, we're creating a second water source with $200 million in federal resources from the American Rescue Plan. That for just for context, is almost equivalent to the size of our tax-funded budget. So we're talking about partnerships with the federal government that help us get really meaningful work done. So it's an election year. It's a presidential election year, so it's a lot on our minds. What about your constituents? Is it on their minds? 
Yeah, but I think they're mostly focused on how their life is going on the ground and whether or not, you know, they can provide for their families, afford their housing. And so, again, continuing to partner here with the federal government to bring resources down that help continue to make our cities more affordable, more safe, whether that's uh, building permanent supportive housing for the unsheltered, which we are doing in Lincoln with assistance from the federal government, uh, or or taking lead out of old pipes, which we're doing with assistance as well. And what's the first thing you're going to do when you go back after this meeting? Well, I'm going to continue to be serving the public and uh, meeting with my constituents and implementing our strategic plan, which is focused on growing that quality of life in Lincoln. That's Lirian Gaylor-Baird. She is the mayor of Lincoln, Nebraska. Tomorrow, we will be speaking with the mayor of Newport, Rhode Island. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for talking with us and coming in. Oh, thank you so much. Ruth Ashton Taylor died recently at the age of 101. Ruth Ashton Taylor was the first woman to work as a newscaster on the West Coast. From Los Angeles comes the story of today, the big news. For KNXT News, this is Ruth Ashton Taylor reporting. Taylor was a fixture on television in Los Angeles for decades. She started out in radio in the late 1940s, producing documentaries for the broadcaster Edward R. Murrow. She interviewed Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein for a story about atomic power. She moved to television in the 1950s at a time when hardly any women worked in broadcast news. It's very hard to explain to an audience in 2024 what she faced. We're talking about a newsroom that was all white male. Joe Saltzman teaches journalism at USC. He worked with Taylor in the 1960s and 70s at the CBS affiliate in Los Angeles. Ruth came in and because she was so good and she was so insistent, she did get the job as a female reporter, but they wanted to just give her what they called woman stories, where a man would cover a trial and the woman reporter would cover the grieving mother, the grieving wife the grieving girlfriend. She said, no, I want to cover everything, just like any other reporter. And eventually, she got her own show, interviewing newsmakers, politicians, celebrities. In fact, she told me once the best compliment that the men could give her was saying, boy, you're a hell of a newsman. They wouldn't say newswoman. They would say newsman. Taylor went on to receive a Lifetime Achievement Emmy, and she got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Mom, I finally made my mark. It's right here on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in cement. (laughs) Mom, (laughs) she paved the way for other women journalists. I think she was the person that enabled probably two or three generations of female journalists to get jobs in journalism and say if she could do it under the worst circumstances, maybe we have a chance. That's Joe Saltzman speaking about his former newsroom colleague, Ruth Ashton Taylor. She died last week in Northern California, and we thank her. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin.
And I'm Steve Inskeep. Sunny, windy, and upper 20s today, mostly clear and upper teens tonight. Near 30 tomorrow under skies that will grow increasingly overcast. It's 20 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bowery Boston, presenting the Avit Brothers at the stage at Suffolk Downs on Friday, May 18th. Learn more at theavitbrothers.com. And Boston Children's Museum. Feel the power of play with sock skating, fun activities in the polar playground, and over 20 exhibits to explore. bostonchildrensmuseum.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. strikes Houthi targets in Yemen for a third time. U.S. officials say they plan to designate the militants as a terrorist organization. It's Wednesday, January 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Qatar says it's brokered a deal between Israel and Hamas to send medicine to hostages in Gaza. We'll look at the strategy that led to Qatar's role as mediator. This policy enabled Qatar to maintain open lines of communication with different actors who wouldn't otherwise talk to each other. Also, a new study suggests that an anonymous tip line for students could help address gun violence. And this hour, an artist's quest to create a series of statues celebrating people who helped build Boston's Chinatown. I would like for younger people to feel that our ancestors have a lot of uh, dignity inside them. Sunny and windy today in the 20s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Republican presidential candidates are campaigning in New Hampshire ahead of next week's primary in that state. From member station WBUR, Anthony Brooks reports former President Donald Trump is coming off a decisive victory in this week's Iowa Republican caucuses. Trump rallied supporters, many of whom wore red MAGA hats in the town of Atkinson. He touted his landslide victory in Iowa and said with their help, he can also win next week in New Hampshire. Brian Nado says he's supporting Trump because he's already proved that he can do the job. Keeping us out of wars on the world stage, keeping us energy independent, bringing people in to the country the legal way, the right way, and not just opening the borders. In New Hampshire, Trump faces a challenge from Nikki Haley, who finished third in Iowa. But with the support of moderate independents, she's within striking distance of catching him, according to some polls. For NPR News, I'm Anthony Brooks in Atkinson, New Hampshire. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry is at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. He's participating in a group that's trying to coax the private sector to build more products that don't contribute to global warming. Kerry has also said he is stepping down from his role to campaign for President Biden. Because I'm a federal employee, I'm not allowed to engage in the the campaign. That's not going to happen. So I, I want to be able to speak out on that and other issues globally. Kerry says he plans to continue attending world climate summits. The Biden administration is proposing changes to federal rules that would limit how much people pay in overdraft fees to their banks. The proposal could cut the overdraft fee to as little as $3. It would also slash billions of dollars in revenue for the nation's largest banks. 
Financial analysts expect those banks to challenge the proposed rule in court. The Israeli military says it has killed the leader of what it calls a terrorist cell in the occupied West Bank. Israeli raids, airstrikes and arrests were already rising there before October 7th, but NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv they've skyrocketed since. The Israeli military issued video, black and white aerial footage of an airstrike on the Balata refugee camp in the northern West Bank city of Nablus. It says a quote, terrorist cell was eliminated, but didn't say how many people were killed. Among them though, the Israeli military says, was a militant leader who'd received funding and guidance from Iran and had been planning an imminent large scale attack. Since the fighting in Gaza began, Israeli military operations have killed hundreds of people in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, too, according to health officials there. Human rights groups and Palestinian officials say thousands of residents have also been arrested. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey is set to deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tonight. As WBUR's Walter Wathman reports, Healey is expected to call for investments in housing, education, and transportation. This will be the governor's moment to highlight policy wins from her first year in office, from passing tax cuts to making community college free for people over 25. She'll also lay out her vision for the year ahead. One of Healy's major priorities is a $4.1 billion housing bond bill that would encourage affordable housing production and loosen local zoning regulations. But Healy faces a tightening financial climate. Last week, she cut hundreds of millions in spending to account for falling tax revenues. And her administration says it will have to spend about a billion dollars over the next year to support the state's overburdened emergency shelter system. Healy's speech will begin at 7 o'clock tonight. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Tune in to WBUR at 645 tonight for live special coverage of Healy's State of the Commonwealth Address. Pembroke school officials are backing off a controversial proposal that would have prevented teachers from discussing political and social views at school. Last night, four members of the Pembroke School Committee voted down the policy. The ACLU criticized the proposal as unlawful. School leaders tell the Boston Globe the proposal could open the town up to unnecessary lawsuits. 90% of Cape Cod's coastal inlets and more than a third of its freshwater ponds have unacceptable water quality. That's according to a new report from the nonprofit Association to Preserve Cape Cod. As WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, decades of pollution continue to threaten both human health and ecosystems. Cape Cod's bays and ponds are polluted with excess nutrients, mostly from septic systems, which feed the growth of invasive weeds and toxic algae. New state regulations are forcing communities to clean up the water, but it's too soon to see any results. Andrew Gottlieb is with the Association to Preserve Cape Cod. You know, it took a long time to screw these things up, and it's going to take a long time and a lot of investment to to bring them back. But we're finally on the right track. One bright spot, the Cape's public drinking water, for the most part, remains excellent. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will stump for President Joe Biden in New Hampshire this weekend. Wu is set to campaign for the incumbent ahead of Tuesday's primaries. Because Biden's name will not appear on the ballot there, supporters are pushing a write-in campaign. The Boston Herald reports Wu will attend events promoting that campaign while in the Granite State on Saturday.
It's 806. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. Northeastern University and Boston University will face off next week during the women's beanpot title match. BU upset Boston College yesterday 4-3 in a shootout. Defending champs Northeastern beat Harvard 1-0. The two teams will play for the beanpot championship Tuesday at the Garden. The Celtics are back home tonight to take on the San Antonio Spurs. The game gets underway at 7.30. We'll have sunny skies today, but it'll be windy with a high of only in the upper 20s. Tonight, skies remain clear and temperatures dip into the teens. Tomorrow, clouds will move back in and it'll be windy again with a high near 30. It's 20 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Coming out of Monday's Iowa caucuses, just three major candidates remain. Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. Nikki Haley said only the top two from Iowa, you know, go on to be viable. Well, guess what? We punched our ticket out of Iowa yesterday. So it's now off to New Hampshire, a great place. Former President Trump is leading in polls in New Hampshire and everywhere among Republicans, but the contest is closer in New Hampshire than elsewhere, where Nikki Haley is appealing for voters' help to avoid a rematch of the 2020 campaign. Ron DeSantis is trying to build on his second-place finish in Iowa. Both of those challengers have passed ties to Trump and now have been trying to win over some of his supporters. And they are all in New Hampshire today, and so is NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben, who is here to sketch out the state of the race there. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning. So, yeah, no, it's cool. And it's early. It is. Now six days out, what are the candidates talking about, and how are they talking about these things? Well, their messages haven't really changed since Iowa, except I guess you could say there is a bit more attacking between the candidates, especially between Haley and Trump. Last night at a rally, Trump made it very clear he's focusing on taking aim at Haley, both personally and at some of her policies. Haley had an event last night where she also stuck to her usual script. She is set to give Trump more of a challenge here, so she's really focusing on hitting him. Here in New Hampshire, she's kind of trying to treat this as if it were a two-person race. Now, as for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, we haven't heard from him yet in New Hampshire. He first went to South Carolina to sort of troll Nikki Haley in her home state and try to beat her there. He has now come to New Hampshire, but he's had to cancel his event so far because of bad weather. It just kind of followed us all here. Okay, let's talk about Trump. What's what's he up to? Well, he went to New York first after Iowa for the opening of the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial. That is the writer who accused Trump of rape, and a jury has found that he sexually abused her. So this is a defamation case related to that. And that's where his head was yesterday. Uh, After winning Iowa, he spent a couple hours yesterday just posting on Truth Social, attacking Carol, complaining about the trial. But here in New Hampshire at his rally last night, he really attacked Haley a lot on a few points. For example, that she wants to raise the Social Security eligibility age and also that she wants to send aid to Ukraine. So you mentioned that Haley does appear to be the top rival to Trump in New Hampshire. Just say more about that. Yeah, so her margin here is much tighter than it was in Iowa. She's polling maybe 12 points behind Trump per the 538 polling average. 
And the spin her campaign has after her third place finish in Iowa is that she has long-term momentum. When he was introducing her yesterday, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu said that Haley had, just a few months ago, been in single digits in Iowa and New Hampshire. And that all is true, but Trump is so dominant, she would need a huge pickup in support to be more of a threat. And so she's really focusing on him, case in point. There had been a debate scheduled for Thursday, but Haley has since said she wouldn't debate again unless it was against Trump or Biden. Okay, and to round things out, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has not been doing well in New Hampshire so far. So he's, I, I guess he's hoping that the momentum from that second place finish in Iowa will help him there. Yes, but like you said, he, he hasn't really contested New Hampshire much yet. It's clear he's focusing on South Carolina, uh, likely thinking that he's going to do better with Southern, traditional, evangelical voters as opposed to New England Republicans who are known for having a bit more of a libertarian streak. And like I said, we just haven't heard his message yet here. We've got to wait out this weather. That is NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben in New Hampshire. Danielle, stay safe, stay warm, do your best. Yes, thank you. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court hears a challenge to the way the federal government regulates about everything. A system in place for decades has imposed limits on air and water pollution and gun safety and workplace protections. Now a group of herring fishermen from New Jersey has questioned the system. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. For Bill Bright, seafood is all in the family. I'm kind of the black sheep of the family that I actually went to the sea, and now my kids are following my footsteps. My boys are working on the boats, and my daughters, we have a shoreside uh, business, and they run that. So we're all, the whole family is in the seafood business 100%. Bright says he welcomes regulations to keep the herring population strong in the waters off of Cape May, New Jersey. But he says the fishery service went too far when the government mandated vessel owners like him had to pay for observers on the boats to make sure they're following the rules. But we have this hanging over our head and we're not under any illusion once they start charging us for the monitor, that's never going away. He's the lead plaintiff in a case the Supreme Court will hear today with implications far beyond the fishing industry. The real purpose of it is to enfeeble the federal government so that we don't have the capacity to deal with modern problems and billionaires and big companies can just do what they want and not be checked. That's David Doniger, senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council, a nonprofit environmental advocacy group. Well, I have frequently quipped that my career would be bookended by the birth and death of the Chevron Doctrine, and I will be on the losing side both times. I hope that's wrong. In 1984, Doniger argued and lost an environmental law case involving the energy giant Chevron and the EPA at the Supreme Court. The facts of that case are overshadowed by a system it enshrined about the way judges evaluate federal regulations under legal challenge. Again, David Doniger. So the doctrine from the Chevron case is judges are supposed to follow a two-step procedure. First, judges are supposed to ask whether a law is clear when someone challenges a federal rule. Then, if the law is not clear, if there's an ambiguity... Then the court's supposed to defer to the agency decision if it's a permissible or reasonable interpretation. In practice, that's meant that courts often defer to people inside federal agencies who are experts on things like pollution, banking, and food safety. Paul Clement has argued more than 100 times before the Supreme Court. You can't think of a better way to mark the 40th anniversary of the Chevron decision than with an overruling. 
Clement will represent the herring fishermen today. In our view, this really has gotten out of control. Clement says the current system means Congress never has to weigh in and reach a compromise on the toughest policy questions. Because one side or the other can just wait for a change in the executive branch every four or eight years, and the rules will swing back and forth based on the views of the political party in power. Again, Paul Clement. I think it's really as simple as this, which is when the statute is ambiguous and the tie has to go to someone, we think the tie should go to the citizen and not to the government. And one of the many problems with the Chevron rule is it basically says that when the statutory question is close, the tie goes to the government. And that just doesn't make any sense to us. Conservatives on the Supreme Court, including Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, have been critical of the Chevron approach for years now. Gorsuch even wrote that Chevron deserves a tombstone. The effort to overturn the nearly 40-year-old case has the support of conservative legal foundations, the Gun Owners of America, and a trade group for electronic cigarette makers. Don McGahn, the White House counsel for former President Donald Trump, made deregulation a top priority. McGahn told a conservative audience during the Trump years that Trump nominated judges who shared that outlook. There is a coherent plan here where actually the judicial selection and the deregulatory effort are really the flip side of the same coin. The Biden administration is defending the fishing regulation and the Chevron doctrine as a deeply ingrained part of administrative law, one that's crucial to the health and safety regulations people rely on. The Solicitor General says in court papers that the monitoring program for the herring fishermen is not operating due to a lack of funds, and that vessels that already paid for monitors have been reimbursed by the federal government, so the actual stakes for the herring fishermen are low. David Doniger, the environmental advocate, says this case is about far more than fishing regulation. The hidden agenda, he says, is protecting big oil, big gas, and big financial industries. The herring boats are just, you know, they're just a front. I mean, they're kind of a red herring. A decision by the Supreme Court is expected by June. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. See something, say something. That is not just a slogan for subway stations and airports. Schools across the country have set up anonymous tip lines for their students to report potential threats from gun violence. And now there's a new study in the journal Pediatrics that finds that in one state, the tip line is catching those threats. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has this report. This particular tip line is called the Say Something Anonymous Reporting System. Students can submit a tip through an app, a phone, or a website and the tips go to trained counselors at the Sandy Hook Crisis Center. These individuals are trained to live triage the tips. Elise Tulin is at the University of Michigan's Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. For their study, Tulin and her colleagues zeroed in on one state, North Carolina, and looked at data on tips from 2019 to 2023, a total of more than 18,000 tips. What we found is that 10% of tips contain reference to a firearm. 38% of those gun-related tips were about potential school shootings, and nearly a quarter were about seeing or knowing of a weapon. And, Tulin says, We found that 50% of the time that tips containing a firearm were requiring that urgent response. A separate analysis by the Sandy Hook Promise Foundation shows that the tip line prevented six planned school shootings and 38 instances of school violence. Beverly Kingston studies violence prevention at the University of Colorado Boulder. She wasn't involved in the new study, but is heartened by the findings. 
it demonstrates that anonymous reporting systems can be a useful and a practical strategy to address gun violence and other concerning behaviors. Kingston says these findings come at a time when gun violence has become a major public health problem. In a country that has the level of firearms that we have, we need to have anonymous reporting. Read the strategy NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning that a judge has blocked JetBlue's merger with Spirit Airlines. Also, a privately chartered mission to the International Space Station is scheduled for liftoff today. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, how Qatar became a crucial mediator for the West, most recently brokering a possible deal to get medicine to hostages in Gaza. It's 820. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. I'm Deepa Fernandez, a community organizer in Ohio, is helping formerly incarcerated people who feel powerless feel powerful by engaging in democracy. The first thing came to my mind was how is it more difficult to do right than it is to do wrong? Empowering voters who often face an uphill battle to transition back to society next time here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Sunny, windy, and cold today with a high only in the upper 20s. Mostly clear with lows in the upper teens tonight. It gradually grows overcast tomorrow and will be windy again. We'll have a high near 30. It's 20 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Freud's Last Session, a new film starring Anthony Hopkins as Sigmund Freud and Matthew Goode as C.S. Lewis, who converge in a battle over the existence of God, now playing only in theaters. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Fisher Investments, As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Okay, haven't we all had that one garment that we regret just didn't fit right, didn't make you feel great wearing it? Or that special piece you wish you could wear, but for whatever reason you can't. Maybe it doesn't come in your size or you just can't move in it. Okay, so now imagine you have a disability and that's every day. It's always hard to get clothes that fit well and make you feel great. That's the problem the Parsons School of Design in New York is trying to solve with a new program to support fashion by and for people with disabilities. I recently spoke with two people involved in that effort. Ben Barry is the dean of the School of Fashion at Parsons School of Design. 
And Sinead Burke is the founder of the accessibility consulting firm Tilting the Lens, which helped develop the program. Burke told me she has achondroplasia, that's a form of dwarfism, and she realized at a young age that finding clothes she actually wanted to wear was a struggle. I'm the eldest of five children, and my siblings are all non-disabled. My father, he's a little person, but my mother is not. And I remember being the eldest, but my sisters in particular having more range in clothing options and in footwear. I remember that they just didn't have to wear shoes that had Velcro straps and that could light up. They had options and choices. And I remember going to my dad when I was kind of 12 or 13 and saying to him, you know, what do I wear? And, you know, my dad probably being conditioned by a lack of access to clothes his whole life meant that he just wore whatever was available. And his advice at the time was not that it didn't really matter, but that there was nothing that we could do about it. And I've always been, I think, a bit of a tenacious individual and never really accepted that as a response or an answer. Hmm, Wow. What about you, Dean Barry? I grew up loving fashion. And I have memories that being four and five, going through the clothes in my grandmother's closet, trying on her hats, trying on her white silk gloves, and immediately feeling a deep connection between my soul and my body. As I started to get older, I not only learned around norms of brand masculinity and fashion and gender, but I also learned how fashion was so valued for its visual power, the visual primacy was always the most important. And it always didn't connect to my own lived experience um, as someone with low vision, as someone who engaged with clothing through touch. And so I think for me, it was really meeting other disabled folks, disabled artists that allowed me to really be proud of my disabled experience and also recognize that fashion is such an incredible way to engage in a multi-sensory experience. Are there barriers to entry that people with disabilities would, would specifically experience trying to get into fashion that people outside of it wouldn't necessarily be aware of? Disabled people have always been designers. We've had to make and remake clothes to best support our bodies and minds, to affirm our identities. And so in many ways, making clothing is part of disability culture. Mm. But within fashion, when disabled people have had opportunities to engage in design, it's always been having them or having us be invited in to test products, to be research subjects, maybe at best as co-designers, but often without the design credit and compensation that comes along with sharing our ideas. And then there's also more worldview changes that need to be made. How do we define beauty? Hmm. How do we understand the body? So I think so much of this is not just to remove barriers to access to fashion education, but really to ensure that disabled folks can thrive in the fashion industry. Sinead, before we let you go, you and Dean Barry have both given us, I don't know, for want of a better word, kind of moral arguments, but you've been advising companies for some time over an array of products and sectors. And I'm wondering if there's a bottom line here too. Yes, there is a moral argument. But even when we think about the moral argument, sometimes that creates this notion in our own minds that it's, you know, a small group of people. I think the reality is, is that even if we look to the US, this is one in four people. 
And that is without acknowledging that we live in an aging society and that we all become disabled at some point in our lives. But if we think about specifically the business and the finance metrics, there is an economic rationale as to why we should do this. In terms of the disabled community globally, that's about 1.6 billion people. In terms of their spending power, the discretionary income of disabled people globally amounts to roughly 1.7 trillion US dollars. So this isn't a niche program for a small group of people. This is genuinely for all of us. Sinead Burke is a disability advocate who founded the accessibility consulting firm Tilting the Lens. Ben Barry is dean of the School of Fashion at Parsons School of Design in New York. Air Force 2nd Lieutenant Madison Marsh has made history. She is the first active duty service member to be crowned Miss America. Miss Colorado, The pilot, who is 22 years old, graduated from the Air Force Academy last year with a degree in physics. Marsh is also the president of the Whitney Marsh Foundation, named in honor of her mother, who died of pancreatic cancer. Madison and her family created the nonprofit to raise awareness of the disease and also raise money for research. During the Miss America competition, she talked about the experience of losing her mom. I've understood and I've had to know where my last conversation with my mom would be. And for many of you, you will never get that chance. So teaching others to say what needs to be said, do what needs to be done. We are the change that we've been waiting for. As a graduate intern at Harvard Medical School, Marsh is currently working on using artificial intelligence to detect pancreatic cancer, and she is pursuing a degree in public policy. Wow. I joined Miss America because I get to wear as many hats as I want. And by that, I mean I get to be Miss Colorado, but I'm also an Air Force officer, a Harvard Medical School researcher, and a pilot. Because in the Miss America opportunity, you really can be anything. Think of all the different hats, and now, of course, she's also got a crown. Steve, not feeling inadequate at all over here today. No, sir. Um, I can imagine, I, but I guess at 22, you were also an overachiever. Oh, yes, definitely. Not in the Miss America pageant, but I was broke in New York City, freelancing journalism pieces and trying desperately to pay the rent. This is NPR News. Today's top stories for next, then coming up at 8.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, an artist is paying tribute to the people who helped build Boston's Chinatown with a series of statues. It's 8.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Republican presidential candidates are campaigning in New Hampshire today, ahead of next week's primary in the Granite State. Former President Donald Trump was in the town of Atkinson yesterday, urging supporters to turn out next Tuesday. Don't believe the polls. Or even if you want, think we're one point down. We're not. We're like 30 points up. 
But don't believe me, you have to get out and you have to vote. Trump is coming off a decisive win in Monday's Iowa caucuses, where he captured more than 50 percent of the vote. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is hoping for a stronger showing in New Hampshire after finishing third in Iowa behind Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and far back of Trump. France and Qatar say they've brokered a deal between Israel and Hamas. It will allow a shipment of medicines to reach those being held hostage by the militant group. The medicines are being delivered to the International Red Cross, which will then give them to Hamas. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he's hopeful the Middle East will be a more secure place once the war between Israel and Hamas is over. There's a profound opportunity for regionalization in the Middle East, in the greater Middle East, that we have not had before. Uh, The challenge is realizing it. Blinken was speaking to the New York Times on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Public School students will have a chance to take part in a nationwide program to help train the next generation of health care workers. The city is one of 10 regions receiving millions of dollars for student health care training. The program is being funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies. High school students in the program will receive training through BPS. They'll then be connected with jobs through Mass General Brigham after graduation. The mayor of New Bedford wants to crack down on so-called absentee landlords. He's filed a proposal that would allow the city to more quickly issue large fines when a landlord violates certain regulations. Current rules require 25 separate violations before the city can issue maximum fines. Mayor John Mitchell calls the current fine schedule too gradual. He wants city inspectors to be able to issue maximum fines after seven violations. Once the polls close in next week's New Hampshire primary, we might get Republican results sooner than Democratic numbers. Olivia Richardson reports. Incumbent President Joe Biden opted out of appearing on the New Hampshire primary ballot because the state ignored his preferred primary schedule, which put South Carolina first. But there's been a push by Biden supporters to get Granite Staters to write in his name on the Democratic ballot. And some say that could slow down the count in next week's primary. Normally, the primary results for both parties are announced together. But in a new memo to election workers, the New Hampshire Attorney General and Secretary of State say the cities and towns can announce Republican tallies before the Democrats' count is done. That's as long as Republican results are approved by a moderator and all votes are counted. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Olivia Richardson. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. Northeastern University will play to keep its women's beanpot title next week when they face off against Boston University. The two teams won their matches against Harvard and Boston College yesterday. The championship game takes place at the Garden on Tuesday. The Celtics will be back home tonight. They take on the San Antonio Spurs at 7.30. Clear skies and windy today. It'll be cold with highs only in the upper 20s. Still mostly clear tonight. Temperatures fall into the teens. Clouds move in throughout the day tomorrow and it'll be windy again. Highs will be near 30. It's 20 degrees in Boston. You're WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams 
Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. The tiny Persian Gulf nation of Qatar has come to occupy a big role on the world stage. It has roughly 300,000 citizens, lots of expat workers, and wealth from fossil fuels. And it has become a crucial mediator in many of the Middle East's conflicts. Yesterday, Qatar announced it brokered a new deal between Israel and Hamas to allow medicine to be delivered to Israeli captives in exchange for increased aid for Palestinians in Gaza. Qatar also helped negotiate the release of Israeli hostages back in November. So what does Qatar gain? Our co-host Leila Fadl spoke with Mehran Kamrava about that. He is a professor of government at Georgetown University in Qatar. In the 1990s, as part of its survival strategy, Qatar decided to minimize the number of its potential adversaries and to maximize its friends. And so it decided to be friendly with as many countries and different actors as possible. And of course, some of those actors and countries Qatar was more friendly with. It houses the largest U.S. base outside of the United States, a few kilometers from Doha. And at the same time, in order not to antagonize a country like Iran, it continued to maintain relations with Iran. And this policy of kind of maintaining as many friends enabled Qatar to maintain open lines of communication with a number of different actors who wouldn't otherwise talk to each other. Mm. So in the past, Qatar's ambitions and its approach to have a very non-adversarial relationship with as many countries as possible has ruffled feathers in the neighborhood, especially its relationship with Iran. So where does that leave Qatar with its Arab neighbors? I mean, especially after a diplomatic crisis in 2017 that saw an economic and diplomatic blockade from Saudi Arabia and the UAE until 2021. One of the problems with maintaining as many friends as possible and as few adversaries as possible is that if you look at it from the outside, that foreign policy does not look coherent because sometimes you're talking to groups that you consider as your adversary. Throughout the 2000s, the Qataris lost sight of their small size and became extremely confident to the point of coming across as at times even arrogant by countries that saw themselves more appropriate to positions of leadership, namely Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And so there was an effort first in 2014 with the withdrawal of ambassadors and then in 2017 with the blockade to put Qatar in what was considered its proper place, to teach it a lesson. How important is a role like the one that Qatar plays? I mean, having somebody who speaks to everybody, which is a very difficult position to be in, but it also means there's an open line of communication even when it seems closed. When the United States wanted to talk to the Taliban, it was through the good offices of the Qatari government where those negotiations happened. When the U.S. wanted to 
exchange prisoners with Iran and effect the transfer of Iranian funds from South Korea, it was through Qatar that that happened. And now, in the latest episode, we see that it was through Qatar that mediation resulted in the release of Israeli hostages that have been held by Hamas so far. So Qatar's so-called maverick foreign policy has actually been extremely useful for the United States. That's Mehran Kamrava. He's a professor of government at Georgetown University in Qatar. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. A privately chartered mission to the International Space Station is set to launch today from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. A SpaceX capsule will transport a four-member crew for a two-week mission. The crew has a packed schedule with dozens of science experiments. WMFE's Brendan Byrne explains how the work will help prepare for future private missions and commercial space stations. The international crew is made up of astronauts from the European Space Agency, Italian Air Force, and Turkish Space Agency. The crew is commanded by Axiom Space's Michael Lopez Alegria, a former NASA astronaut. The crew will conduct 30 experiments over the two-week stay, says Lopez Alegria. It's going to be very, very busy. Their work includes research into proteins related to neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, examining how microgravity affects plant genes, and testing sensors that look for contaminants in the air. This is Houston-based Axiom Space's third mission to the ISS. The company hasn't disclosed the cost to take a trip to the station, but before its first flight, it advertised a price tag of $55 million per seat. Despite the cost, these type of missions are far from a millionaire's joyride to space. You don't train for two and a half years for a vacation, so it was anything but. Investor and racing driver John Schaffner flew on Axiom's last mission to the station, spending nine days in orbit. Schaffner and the crew conducted a similar cadence of experiments and outreach events. It was even the subject of an ongoing experiment. Scientists with Baylor's Translational Research Institute for Space Health, or TRISH, are interested in space adaptation syndrome kind of motion sickness caused by the human body's adaptation to microgravity. It's experienced by many space travelers, both career NASA astronauts and private space flyers, and includes symptoms like nausea and vomiting. But Schaffner says other problems pop up, like brain fog and fatigue. Some astronauts call it space stupid <laughs> because it's challenging, and we need to understand that more. These symptoms can affect an astronaut's performance in orbit and even limit the amount of work they can accomplish. With time and space so expensive, it's important to maximize an astronaut's time so they can perform experiments, not spend most of their time feeling sick. That's why data from Schaffner's flight is joining a growing data set compiled by Trish, says Chief Medical Officer Emmanuel Urqueta. This includes things like uh, sensory motor adaptation. How is your balance going to change before and after space flight? Are you going to develop space motion sickness and what can we learn from you to prevent the next generation of flyers that would not develop space motion sickness in, in space. That includes collecting blood, saliva, urine, and skin and stool swabs before, during, and after flight. Researchers are also looking at how the human body changes and how to better prepare people to make the most of their time in space. This study comes at a critical moment for orbital research. NASA announced plans to retire the International Space Station in the next decade and wants the commercial sector to build private space-based platforms for research. Axiom is one company doing that already, and others like Blue Origin and Voyager Space are working on stations of their own. This means more people will have access to space, and for Axiom 2 pilot John Schaffner, he's happy to serve as a research subject. Wanting to become part of this first early entry was important to me because I wanted to not only be part of the development of early data sets, but experience spaceflight as it 
exists now before it changes, before we understand much more. So far, they've collected data from about 16 spaceflight participants, including the four about to launch the station. They'll keep adding to that as more commercial missions take flight. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. This is NPR News. After one year in office, Governor Moore Healey will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tonight. Listen for live special coverage at 6.45 tonight on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about rising ocean shipping rates. They've gone way up in recent days, mostly because of attacks by Houthi rebels on ships in the Red Sea. Only in the upper 20s today, it'll be sunny and windy. Upper teens tonight under mostly clear skies. Near 30 tomorrow and windy again. It'll grow increasingly overcast throughout the day. It's 20 degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial. Committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946. And working to build community with Jazz Night presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals has received FDA approval for its gene-editing drug to treat a second rare disease. Casgevy is now approved to treat certain versions of a blood disorder. Late last year, the drug was approved to start treating sickle cell disease. The drug uses gene-editing technology to replace disease-causing genes. Boston MedFlight is adding a new jet and helicopter to its fleet. It's using more than $16 million in new funding to purchase the equipment. The nonprofit transports critically ill patients to and from hospitals. Downtown Boston is getting a new food hall today. A group of vendors is setting up shop at the Connector and Winthrop Center. The food hall, called The Lineup, will offer foods like pizza, sandwiches, and burgers. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. George Washington astride his horse. Martin Luther King Jr. locked in an eternal embrace with Coretta Scott King. These are some of Boston's iconic bronze statues, which honor major historic figures. Now in Chinatown, one artist is on a quest to memorialize the ordinary people who built the neighborhood. WBUR's Amelia Mason went downtown to watch him at work. Wen Tzen stands in the Pow Art Center in Chinatown, peering skeptically at a large foam man. The figure stares vacantly with his arms stretched out in front of him. I'm not very happy with it because it's like, uh, to me, it's like a stranger. I keep thinking of Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein, <laughs> who's just wandering around 
and they're looking for a victim. Nearby, a smaller version of the statue reveals why he seems to be groping the empty air. There's meant to be a table where he rests his hands, and on it, a pile of laundry. He is a laundryman, one of four statues by Tsen that will be installed throughout Chinatown. The others depict a restaurant worker, a garment worker, and a grandmother caring for a child. The four figures are based on Chinese workers traditionally in America for the last 200 years. At first, because of the discrimination, they were not allowed to have any jobs or own any business. Zen drew on oral histories for his research. He explains that Chinese immigrants initially found work in laundromats and restaurants. The end of the Chinese Exclusion Act, followed by immigration reform in the 1960s, meant that men could finally bring their families to the states, where women found work in garment factories and grandparents cared for children. Each of Zen's figures looks up from their task as if caught in a reverie, momentarily free of the work that fills their days. The laundryman rests one hand possessively on a stack of folded clothes. I want him, the statue, to that he has control over what he has created, what he has cleaned. Zen says immigrants often had to travel far outside the city to find work. He imagines the laundryman would have found small ways to assert his humanity when faced with racist customers in a small New England town. He has no way of writing down their names even, so he often describes it in Chinese on the packet, you know, the person with a mole on his cheek. It's an indication, and it's also a way of controlling his life, overcoming some of the prejudices that he faces. Zen, who turned 88 this month, is a longtime Boston-area painter and public artist. Three days a week, he spends a couple hours working on the laundryman in the foyer of the Pow Arts Center. The exhibition is designed so the public can see his process as it unfolds. I think it kind of breaks down a little bit like the mystique of the sculptor in a studio or that very Western notion of the master artist. Cynthia Wu is the director of the Pow Arts Center. She says the exhibition has provided an opportunity to educate visitors about Chinese-American history. Many people don't know the history of labor, so it really provides an interesting gateway to talk about these underrepresented stories and histories that um, aren't really taught in schools, and it's a very tangible way for people to connect. The exhibition also lets the public into the sometimes arduous process of making art. The full-sized laundryman statue was carved out of foam based on a digital scan of the small model and then covered in a layer of clay. Now, Zen must refine the features on the large model so it can be used to make a mold for the bronze statue. Like this nostril here, if I move it one way or the other, it can show changes expression. Zen says he wants Chinatown residents to feel a sense of pride when they pass the statue on the street. The Chinatown community gets to be quite downtrodden, but I would like even for the older people to see we don't have to be like that, and especially for younger people to feel that our ancestors know that they have a lot of uh, dignity inside them. Zen's Chinatown Workers Project recently came one step closer to reality with a $1 million grant from the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. Several potential sites for the statues have been identified. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll delve into news that China's birth rate has dropped to another record low. The ruling Communist Party is trying to encourage women to have more babies, but the message doesn't seem to be working. It's 8.50. WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. HabibARCH.com. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. France and Qatar say Israel and Hamas have agreed to a new deal to get medicine to hostages and humanitarian aid to civilians in Gaza. Iran is taking responsibility for deadly missile attacks in Pakistan and Iraq, increasing regional tensions. And the Supreme Court today hears arguments in a case that could change the way the federal government imposes regulations. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. Sunny, windy, and upper 20s today, mostly clear and upper teens tonight. Increasingly cloudy, windy, and near 30 tomorrow. It's 20 degrees in Boston. Bank fees, Apple fees, and shipping fees. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Many of the nation's biggest banks have now reported their fourth quarter results, and they have been mixed. Goldman Sachs yesterday beat profit estimates. Citigroup last week reported a loss. And J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America posted lower profits. Now, one way banks have tried to boost their bottom lines is through fees, including overdraft fees. But that is changing. Citigroup last year eliminated overdraft fees, and a new Biden administration rule announced this morning would dramatically reduce those fees at other banks, saving consumers at least billions of dollars a year. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is proposing new regulation. The agency says closes a loophole, which has allowed many banks to charge large fees for overdraft protection. Overdrafts typically occur on debit card transactions and affect about 23 million American households each year. The proposed new rule would reduce the fees banks can charge to only what it costs them to provide overdraft protection services, potentially as little as $3. Alternatively, banks could offer customers an overdraft credit line, which, like any other consumer credit product, would include disclosures of interest rates. That would be a change from current practice at many of the nation's largest banks. CFPB Director Rohit Chopra in a statement said institutions typically charge about $35 for overdrafts, even though the majority of overdraft amounts are less than $26. 
If that was a typical consumer loan, such as a credit card balance, the annual percentage rate would be 16,000%. I'm Novasavo for Marketplace. If you, as a company, have an app on Apple's App Store, you got to use Apple's payment system, from which it takes a hefty commission, 30%. Those have been Apple's rules up till now, and people who make apps do not like them. That has been a big part of a long-running legal battle between Apple and Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite. Epic has argued Apple is being monopolistic. David Niebuhr is a professor at the University of Toronto. Apple created a goose that lays billion-dollar eggs, and one could see why they fight to the nail to prevent any kind of change. Yet yesterday, the Supreme Court declined to hear appeals from both Apple and Epic in that legal battle. The long and short of it is that some changes are coming to Apple's App Store. Apple will now allow developers to use other payment systems. doesn't have to be Apple's. But it isn't making it convenient, and it'll still technically charge a commission. I say technically because Apple also says it might not be able to enforce collection of that commission. These changes, though, apply only to the U.S. So outside of the U.S. jurisdiction, Canada, other big markets, and Europe, uh, the battle continues unabated. And one would hope, if you're an independent developer, that the larger developers such as Epic use their position of power to fight Apple because if you're a small developer you don't you don't want to fight Apple you're always gonna lose Epic Games says it will be fighting the new rules in the US too so the legal battle here is also far from over all right let's do the numbers Dow S&P and Nasdaq futures are all down in the five to eight tenths percent range with Dow futures down 172 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.110%. Retail sales rose 0.6% in December, and they're up 4.8% from December of the previous year. That is higher than many economists expected. It's also higher than inflation. So not only did we spend more, we actually bought more too. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. On the road and at home, customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto with Progressive Insurance. Learn more about Progressive and bundling at Progressive.com. And by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers. Secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. Ocean shipping rates have gone way up in recent days. That is largely because Yemen's Houthi rebels continued to attack ships in the Red Sea. Marketplace's Samantha Fields reports. About a third of global shipping typically passes through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea. But now, because of the attacks, more than 90% of ships are avoiding the route. Emily Benson at the Center for Strategic and International Studies says that's one reason shipping containers is getting more expensive. One of the biggest costs is time from point A to point Z. It can take about two weeks longer for goods to transit around Africa, for example. For ships that are still passing through the Red Sea, insurance has also gotten more expensive because of the attacks. But Benson says for context, even though shipping rates have more than doubled in recent weeks, they're still significantly below where we were in 2021, 2022. So this is nothing like what we experienced during COVID-19. 
At the height of the pandemic, shipping rates skyrocketed from less than $1,500 for a 40-foot container to more than $20,000 at one point. Now they're averaging around $3,000, though it depends on the route. It's important to realize that shipping rates go up and down. Christine McDaniel at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University says companies know this and generally price some amount of volatility in. That's why she says it usually takes a while before increases in shipping rates trickle down to the prices we as consumers pay for things. It usually affects producer prices first and then consumer prices uh, later, but we're not there yet. Especially in the U.S. Mukul Krishna at Frost & Sullivan says it's a bit of a different story in Europe. Right now, Europe is being impacted a lot more than North America, largely because most of Europe's shipping comes through those channels. But Krishna says most companies he's talking to aren't that concerned about these higher shipping costs, at least not yet. They are not as of now seeing any long-term impact, as of now being the key word over here. Because, he says, if the conflict drags on or spreads, that could change. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.